Well, hello. Good morning, everyone. So great to be here. Like Derek said, um, I, well, we just love New York. We're glad to be back. Um, what is it? You have to live 10 years before you can call yourself a New Yorker. So I technically have logged nine years so far, so I'm close. So yeah, after college, uh, so my husband Caleb and I met um, in college at University of Chicago, and one of my first post-college adventures moved to Washington Heights and did this program called New York City Teaching Fellows, where I, they, um, they threw us into grad school at night full-time, and I taught third grade um, at a K through eight school on Jennings Street in the South Bronx for three years. And that was an amazing, amazing uh, induction into New York life and all of its complexities and uh, just how does this happen? How does this tension hold every day? How am I taking the bus every day and learning how to do my makeup, you know, <laughs> on the bus? But like, uh, like Jared said, we, we are part of this vineyard movement. I've, um, I've been a part of the vineyard movement for over 20 years, and it is our spiritual home, and I'm super excited to be able to share some of how God brought me into this family, this spiritual home. But, but more than the vineyard, what I would love to impart to you and encourage you in, in all of our journeys along the way is that ultimately what, what I've gained from being a part of this Vineyard family is to understand my story um, and to understand what I seek to invite people onto, our adventures with the Holy Spirit. So I was born and raised in San Diego. My parents are refugees from Vietnam. And then you heard, so I went to college in Chicago. And then I went to New York after that. Uh, Caleb and I, we planted a vineyard church um, in New Haven, Connecticut. And now I'm the full-time pastor of discipleship down in Philly. So, you know, it's just uh, adventures and going East is uh, one way that I think about my, my life. And one of the things uh, I do on the side is lead the Vineyard Justice Network for Vineyard USA. And it's a, it's a network of vineyard churches that seek to enact God's kingdom justice um, through, through the local church. And you'll hear some stories about that as well. All right, so grew up in San Diego. Uh, my parents were culturally Buddhist, um, which basically meant that I was raised as an atheist achiever. So Bonnie, I don't know if you had a faith background, but like, cheers to you, you know? Um, I was tricked by my friend, Nina Lee, on, um, after we graduated high school, I was quite an outspoken Buddhist atheist person in high school, and she saved all of those chips for like two weeks before we were headed to college. She said, hey, would you come with me to this concert? Okay, Nina. Um, turns out to be this Billy Graham-style 
crusade at the football stadium in San Diego. And God has just such a fantastic sense of humor. And wouldn't you know it, the altar call comes at the end. And I have my first like mystical Holy Spirit experience. And the best way I can describe it is that when I close my eyes, I was filled with this yellow light. And Jesus says, I know you have actually been looking for peace your whole life. 17 years old. (laughs) But if you follow me, I will be your peace. I'm still learning about what that means to follow the person who is my peace, but I knew I couldn't deny that experience. And so I head to I head to Chicago and the first church I experience is the Evanston Vineyard, which is just uh, north of my school, and taken by the person who's now my husband, Caleb, and he said, it's gonna be great. You know, um, that first semester, uh, Bonnie, uh, that first semester for me at college, it was a little bit like adventures in not living with my parents. So (laughs) not living with my parents, but I had this Jesus experience. So it was like very up and down, like just what does it mean to do this thing? And I would agree to be taken to church, and I would cry during the worship. And then I would sleep during the sermon. (laughs) Rinse and repeat for months. Cry, sleep, you know? And um, because, you know, the parties start on, like, Thursday night. So, and my second year in college, a church plant was sent out from Evanston Vineyard, So right across the street from my dorm, Hyde Park Vineyard, planted by a 28-year-old single guy named Rand Tucker. And Rand has this audacious, hairy, scary goal for his church plant, which is to develop world changers who are 100% devoted to Jesus Christ. They celebrated their 20th anniversary a couple years ago, and what I loved about Rand is he saw me and he saw, oh, I think, I think you might be a church planter one day. And I was like, Rand, I can't even stay awake during a sermon. <laughs> like, I don't know what you see, but it is not what's going on. But he just spoke words of faith, words of trust, words of freedom over me that left a permanent imprint. It's like, well, if this is what it means to be vineyard, then I guess I'm vineyard. Maybe I should... Try to, try to listen to what he says sometimes during the sermons. Um, and it was just this beautiful journey of tasting and seeing. Uh, and again, that freedom to trust that we may not see with our eyes what the Holy Spirit is doing at work, but oh yes, the Holy Spirit is at work. I began realizing that God was actually growing this spiritual hunger in me. And by my fourth year in college, um, I started understanding 
that I had caught this bug. I did want to spend all my time doing the stuff. All night Bible studies, praying for people to be healed, learning what it meant to prophesy. Um, there was a pastor um, who connected with me right after I turned 21. He says, I know who you are. You're a kingdom junkie. And I was like, what? What do you, what, what do you, again, what do you see in me? Like, what has happened? And here's the thing. We cannot be kingdom junkies without being Holy Spirit junkies. And I want to take us into the book of Acts, where the book of the Acts of the Apostles lays out the kind of lives that Holy Spirit junkies have. They direct us to adventures in discipleship, justice, and oh yes, casting out a demon or two. So we're going to pick up this kingdom story of redemption, the story of the Holy Spirit in Acts 8. So an angel of the Lord speaks to a disciple, Philip, saying, get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. So an angel of the Lord orders the disciple Philip to stop whatever he's doing and wander off onto a desert road that leads to Gaza. So you've got a disciple here who has somehow already learned the difference between clear obedience in the face of the unclearest of roadmaps. The desert's the place where GPSs don't work. The desert road is a survival road. It's a pilgrim road. But God is Lord of that road, and he commands Philip to chase after the horse-drawn royal chariot of an Ethiopian eunuch. Philip chases after the chariot and has to awkwardly ask, um, I just happened to be jogging by and overheard that you were reading uh, the scriptures of uh, Isaiah 53, that ancient Hebrew poem. Um, do you need some help understanding what you're reading? And so the Ethiopian says, yeah, come on board into my royal chariot. Come and sit. Let us read together Isaiah 53. And Philip guides him through how the scriptures point to the deliverance and salvation of all people coming through a shameful, humiliating, unjust death of a man, like a sheep being led to the slaughter. And this prophecy is fulfilled, Philip explains, in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It's the kingdom story of a life that germinates in this soil of suffering. It's the perfectly awkward, miraculous timing of a kingdom collision. A royal official with enormous power, he controls the national treasury of the land of Ethiopia, a land that represents the ends of the earth in this story. A black man with ambiguous gender identity, seeking guidance from someone who is essentially the official waiter to the poor and the widows of his church. We see the spirit of Jesus at work through his word, and we see the spirit of Jesus always creating an act of community. 
I remember in college, we had this Bible study that met on campus. Yeah, it started at midnight. <laughs> we were studying the book of Joel, and wouldn't you know it, at that very first gathering of that Bible study, it evolved or devolved into us praying at the end with a demon manifesting in one of the people who came to this Bible study. No one had ever seen a demon manifest. I had never seen a demon manifest. No one had ever done a deliverance prayer. I had certainly not been trained. I did not know what was going on. Um, but the, the demon spoke through this person and said, she's mine. You can't have her. Um, People tried to stay calm. I mean, it's probably like 2 in the morning. There's like growling. There's like voices happening. People are seeing dark, shadowy figures in the room. And then uh, someone else says, you know what? Maybe we should call the person who leads the official Bible study that we normally go to <laughs> like on Wednesdays. <laughs> so our friend Jordan Sang comes over. And Jordan coaches us into leaning in and lean towards the person who was manifesting this demon because demons try to isolate people. Jordan coaches the group to declare the simple truth that is what eventually makes this demon leave. You belong to Christ. He is your Lord. The enemy uses demons to isolate the Spirit of God frees people to be fully present. So in our story with the Ethiopian eunuch, the spirit of Jesus is at work gently drawing what should be the ultimate outsider inside, into the church, into the kingdom story of salvation. The Ethiopian asks the question that's on all of the listeners' lips, wait a minute, um, aren't there things that might prevent me from being baptized? Are there barriers that we might impose that might prevent this Ethiopian from being baptized? And yet what we read and learn in the story is that all that matters is that the Ethiopian, the Ethiopian eunuch yields to what the Spirit is doing through Jesus, the Spirit of God who eagerly go, eagerly desires to go the distance to the other in border-crossing love. And in a virtually seamless motion, he and Philip find water for him to be baptized. Philip baptizes him, and immediately the Holy Spirit whisks him away. It's like Bonnie in the tub, and it's like, Derek, where'd you go? <laughs> I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And just as deliberately as the Spirit miraculously directs Philip to the eunuch, he miraculously teleports Philip 23 miles away. Why would the Spirit of Jesus do this? Who will disciple the Ethiopian? I am the pastor of discipleship. Who will assimilate him into the ways of the church? Who will help him identify his spiritual gifts? What about Connect Ministry and the membership class and learning the five-step prayer model? <laughs> Theologian Willie James Jennings points out that Philip 
will not be allowed to stay to tell him who to be or how to be, how to see himself or receive a preloaded life script in Christ. The eunuch's future is open-ended now, and God has broken the connection between identity and destiny, between definition and determination. The Ethiopian rejoices because God is with him in his difference and in the strange newness of life in Jesus. He rejoices with the joy of freedom in Jesus. The power and the freedom of the Holy Spirit dared to make room for improvisation. Yes, it is a miracle that we get to bear witness to a Jesus follower having the time and space to experience freedom in Christ on the Holy Spirit's terms, not ours. A few months ago, um, I led our uh, biannual Vineyard Justice Network conference in Philadelphia. And uh, we had about um, 180 pastors and leaders from all over the country, including a couple of folks from Mexico and Canada and Ireland and the UK joining us. And we gathered together to see how we might get proximate to some of the most hot button issues of our time. Not that we were going to leave after a couple of days solving and having the right answers, but could it make a difference if we drew near to the people who are most impacted by what we might talk about on social media or uh, be encouraged to vote on? Shane Claiborne, uh, who's a, uh, just a very inspiring, um, Jesus-following speaker and activist, uh, joined us on Thursday, the first day. And at the end of his time sharing with us, um, we asked just what's, what's on his heart? What, 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 are you, what, what are you doing um, as you're hitting the road? And he shared about how... Um, in five days, one of um, his friends, one of the folks that he has been advocating for for several years was a man named Rodney Reed, who was uh, sentenced to execution the following Friday. And he had given up hope. He was a part of a whole consortium of faith leaders across um, all kinds of traditions. Literally millions of people had written petitions. You have celebrities speaking out, encouraging the governor of Texas to pardon or halt the execution because there was substantial evidence that had come up since his sentencing 23 years ago. Would you please allow justice to be done, governor? There is new evidence. And the governor refused again and again to listen. There were Republicans and Democrats, um, politicians across all spectrums saying, governor, would you please listen? And so we vineyard people just asked Shane, wow, that does sound super, super terrible and, and hopeless. Um, could we pray? Could we pray for you? So we all laid our hands on Shane. And the next day, during our evening worship gathering, I was able 
to get a notification. And I read this to our, our people and I texted Shane. The day after we prayed, the Court of Criminal Appeals in Texas halted the execution of Rodney Reed and ordered the court to consider new evidence in the case. The court chose to move where the governor refused to move. Is the Holy Spirit allowed to answer prayers? Is the Holy Spirit allowed to surprise us in the court of law? We, we, we took everyone to visit Eastern State Penitentiary in Philadelphia, which uh, you may or may not know was the most famous prison in the world at the time. It was our country's first attempt at major prison reform. This reform was pioneered by Christians, by Quakers in Pennsylvania, and here was their aha moment. Let's introduce solitary confinement. That will help the prisoners to be competent, and that is what will help them to be transformed. Sometimes trying to follow what you think the Spirit is doing can turn out not the way that you expect. Might we learn something if we got proximate to our history? Might we learn something if we got proximate to these institutions? We, we took folks to Prevention Point, which is an outreach organization in the epicenter of the opioid crisis in Kensington, Philadelphia. And we learned from one of the leaders, his name was Elvis, and uh, Elvis stopped going to church about 11 years ago. And he shared with us, he said, you know, uh, if, I, if I could tell the church one thing, if I had that opportunity, I'd want to tell the church um, that the people that I work with, the people that I love every day, are not roaches. I sure would love the church to know that these people aren't roaches. Elvis invited our group to see who is qualified, who might the Holy Spirit be present with. And so God directs us to this adventure on the road, putting us in the right position when we do our part, when we might choose to speak, choose to draw nears, choose to hop into that chariot or not put on the headphones. Okay, part two, Acts 9, the conversion of Saul. So we went from the conversion of an outsider into an insider. Acts 9, we've got another road, a little bit more of a famous road, I, I would say. On this road, we've got an insider, Saul, who will be known as Paul. Yep, it's another miracle story of a Holy Spirit setup, but not of eyes being open to the word of God, but eyes 
blinded by the word of God. The Holy Spirit drawing near, but not in gentleness, but with compulsion, with violent force, with judgment. And this tale also, a baptism. But the disciple who baptizes Saul receives his assignment, not with the openness of Philip, but through gritted teeth and actually questions and pushes back against Jesus' logic. Do we dare to allow the Holy Spirit to act as a comforter and an advocate and a prosecutor? Do we dare to allow the Holy Spirit to work miracles amongst those we consider the violent oppressors, deserving poor, undeserving poor, as well as the pious wealthy? I mean, Saul comes to us as a really gnarly, unpleasant dude. He walks, it says in the story, he walks the 150 miles from Jerusalem to Damascus, and which each breath he is breathing out these threats of murdering the Lord's disciples. He's armed with the appropriate warrants so he can hunt down the men and women who belong to the way to tie them up and to bring them back to Jerusalem. Saul wants to make his mark in the world of religious celebrities. He's going to do it by maintaining order. He needs to wipe out these different kinds of people who are challenging the system, challenging what has given Saul his power in the first place. For Saul, the people of the way are like the others. Do you remember that show? Gosh, I love that show. You know, Lost, you've got them, and then you've got the others, or you've got us, and you've got the others. And so for Paul, the others are those godless, law-breaking, socially deviant pagans. They're not worshiping God in the right way. They're allowing people from all kinds of backgrounds to mix together. He's got to get rid of this blight on society. And so our hero, the Holy Spirit, does something the Holy Spirit is not supposed to do. He performs an anti-miracle. This isn't allowed. God is good. God is gentle. God is comforting. God is merciful. God is gracious. God, so Saul has embedded his identity within a circle of violence, and the Holy Spirit ruptures that circle with violence. We read, as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. Saul fell to the ground, and when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. For three days, he was blind. Light flash crashed to the ground. Saul, in all of his purposefulness and complete assurance that what he's doing is good and right for God, gets pounced by God. Ah, poor Saul. It takes Jesus throwing, literally throwing Saul to the ground and blinding him in order for Saul to hear Jesus' voice. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul, why are you hurting me? Jesus disrupts Saul's confidence with the intimate question of a loved one in pain. 
This is actually when I start feeling bad for Saul. I mean, poor Saul, his absolute worst nightmare has come true. He has misidentified the enemy. The Holy Spirit says to Saul, I am Jesus. I am the people you are persecuting, hunting down, murdering, throwing into prison. Saul, I am the others. Jesus literally flattens Saul to the ground in order to get him to see where God has been the whole time. The God who he had committed his whole life to didn't only exist above in heaven. Jesus tells Saul that God is at the bottom, on the side of the others, on the side of those that Saul could not tolerate or stand. Jesus reveals himself as Lord of the persecuted, the God with the others. And it's in the voice of those he had persecuted that Saul now gets his new orders. Get up and go, Saul, and it will be told to you what you have to do. Now, I just love how the Holy Spirit is quite the multitasker, because at the same time that Saul has been laid low and is being emptied out by Jesus, Saul is also speaking to Ananias. Ananias, who is familiar with Jesus' voice. So we read, Ananias, Jesus says, here I am, Lord. He knows God's voice. Get up and go to Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him and restore his sight. Do you see how Jesus gives Ananias the same instructions as Saul? Get up and go. What on earth is Jesus up to? Because here's the thing, this second tale is not just about Saul's conversion. Ananias needs to be converted. He needs to see in a radically new way as well. Ananias says, uh, Lord, maybe you haven't heard, but this Saul fellow is trying to kill people like me. Uh, Lord, uh, I thought you were the God of the oppressed. You wouldn't send a victim straight into the hands of his victimizer, would you? That's not the kind of God you are, right? I would totally side with, with Ananias. Saul's the problem. Saul's the threat. He's the murderer. Best to stay away. We should just protest him. So the Holy Spirit forcibly sends Ananias into the hands of his would-be murderer and oppressor. God says to Ananias, just go. You've seen things wrongly. Even though you are a persecuted minority, I am asking you to lower yourself to help Saul because I, God, am choosing Saul as my vessel. God is making a huge problem for Ananias. Adventure with God equals more Jesus, more problems. <laughs> the Holy Spirit directs Ananias into the enemy camp to go and be a part of what is possible when God shows up. 
Go and see what God can do with a person who seems beyond hope, beyond rescue, beyond forgiveness, beyond redemption, beyond your political preferences. When the Holy Spirit acts on us, he cancels out the lie that we are closed systems, perfect little circles unto ourselves. The Holy Spirit shows that the world is possessed by God. And in our lives of discipleship to Jesus, we make a choice every day when we wake up. Is all that is unfamiliar, strange, demonic, evil from the devil? Maybe we even have perfectly good evidence for the evil that lurks across the street. Murderers, rapists, the needy, the racist, the culturally deficient. Now, earlier in Acts 8, we read about how persecution scatters the disciples, forcing them to leave Jerusalem. So even before we have Ananias being sent to his enemy, we read about God not sparing his disciples from suffering, but moving with them on his mission, always insisting that the boundaries of the state and culture will not limit the Holy Spirit. God sends them into the evil land of Samaria. Philip and his disciples heal the sick, cast out demons, point to God's kingdom breaking in. Notice that God rarely sends his disciples where they want to go. And yet, this is not the story of Satan's rule. These are the stories of God's reign. In Jesus, we can find all that we are called to. And a lot of times, it begins with that simple command, just go. Really, Lord? I mean, really? Just go? Just go to New York City? Really? Lord, what if I get hurt? What if I can't pay the rent unless I have five roommates? What if I make the situation work worse? What if I'm not the expert? What if I'm not fully equipped? What if I'm just not in the mood? What if I don't have the right shoes? What if I'm too tired? What if I'm too disappointed? I think about what is possible when Phil Chorlian, who's a vineyard pastor in North Jersey, crossed a border by actually connecting with the Latino immigrant community who lived in the mobile homes near his church. They discovered that this community was a mile away from where their church was meeting. So they were invited to show up on their turf. Phil has actually taken the time to learn Spanish and has now been invited to preach in that community and has actually helped to raise up a Spanish-speaking pastor who is now on his staff to continue to serve that community. I think about what's possible when Judy Marshall, who's a vineyard pastor in Iowa, chose to follow God by moving into the inner city neighborhood where they were previously doing outreach. And half of their church left because of the pain of racial tensions felt too direct and too close. I think about my friend Ray McDonald, who's a vineyard pastor in Texas, who has run for city council and won and is speaking out about um, disparity issues with regards to access to clean water. 
I think about Dennis Liu, who's a vineyard pastor in Walnut, California, as he's leading an English-speaking vineyard, uh, ethnic Chinese vineyard church. And they've begun the journey of discovering and learning how to fight human trafficking within their own community in Orange County. And then there's my friend David Hansen, who's a pastor of a vineyard in Washington. He and his wife followed the Lord's nudge by crossing borders to move straight in the heart to the heart of downtown inner city Yakima, where their house got covered in graffiti every night. No, they didn't begin with a feeding program. No, they did not begin with the Vineyard Church anti-graffiti campaign. His wife began baking cookies and hand-delivered them to the crack houses that were across the street. They painted over the graffiti every day. Then they started painting over the graffiti of their neighbors. Asked permission first. And slowly, their neighbors started helping with painting each other's houses. Slowly, together with their neighbors, they started planting flowers and picking up the trash on their own street. And slowly, the drug dealers started moving away. Just go, Trinity Grace, just go. Because when we pay attention to where God is, we get to avoid the GMO problem. Do you all know the GMO problem? John Mumford, who is the coordinator for Vineyards International, there's, about two, there's over 2,000 vineyards in the world, he talks about GMOs, Ghastly moral obligations. The rules you must follow that substitute for a relationship. But blessing comes when we choose to break the cycle of ghastly moral obligations and create something entirely new by demonstrating mercy. Our refugee crisis continues to loom. Over 10 million people in the world are currently living as refugees or displaced in their own countries. Will the kingdom people of God respond to show history yielding to the Holy Spirit? What will be our story of God's reign for the 700,000 undocumented young people who were DACA recipients but continue to face threats of deportation? What will our vineyard movement do with the dozens and dozens of undocumented vineyard pastors in our own country? Ananias' posture reminds us that the God we serve is a God who tells us that the people on his road and on his way get deep into the hot messes of the world and of other people's problems. And so rather than choosing hate, fear, cynicism, or apathy, Ananias chooses to obey Jesus, just like Philip. Ananias sets off, he goes to the house, he lays his hands, and he makes physical contact with his enemy. Just like Philip, the Holy Spirit works through him to perform a miracle, a signpost that God's kingdom is breaking in now. Brother Saul, he says, the Lord has sent me. 
Yes, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, so that you may be able to see again and receive the Holy Spirit. The power of obedience. Ananias must choose to not see with the knowledge of facts, the knowledge of fear, but faith in the Holy Spirit to guide and direct him to touch danger. Ananias suffers, yes, by coming from a socially and politically powerless situation, but God speaks clearly to Ananias, directing him to be the teacher and healer for Paul. Ananias sees Saul as that other, the enemy of Jesus, the person who has killed his friends in Jerusalem. But in Jesus, the other becomes a brother. Brother Saul. Holy Spirit comes through Ananias and fills Paul, and instantly something like scales fall from Paul's eyes. This is no longer a time for a teleportation moment. Instead, the Holy Spirit chooses to have Ananias stay and abide with Saul because here is where Ananias is getting converted as well. The invitation is to run down the wild desert road like Philip or to cross the road like Ananias. When those we might label as others or different become brothers and sisters, we get kingdom community. Now, we don't know. We don't know if Ananias was instantly delivered from his prejudice or fear. But what we do know is that Ananias submits to Jesus' claim on Saul's future and chooses to act as if that future has already taken place. The present moment of Jesus saying, I choose Saul for inclusion in my family. Brother Saul. In Jesus, we claim to be filled with courageous resurrection power that compels us to go to the killers, the human traffickers, the undocumented immigrants, the Muslims, to those on the other side of the political divide, to the people at Target, the playground on Broadway. And we catch a glimpse, we catch a glimpse of what is happening in Paul as he's learning about this border-crossing love when he writes a letter years later to the Corinthian church. He says this, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself like everyone, so that I may win more. To the Jew I became a Jew, to the Greek I became a Greek, to the weak I became weak, to the strong I became strong. I've become all things to all men, so that I may all by all means save some. I mean, what a picture in freedom in Christ. Jew, Greek, weak, strong. The Holy Spirit gives us the power to be chameleons. Except that's not exactly what it says. That's not actually what Paul says. Here's what it says. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all, 
so that I may win more. To the Jews I became as a Jew, so that I might win Jews. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some. I made myself a slave. I became weak. This is what God's kingdom is like and what happens when God's ways break into our ways. Paul follows Ananias' example and encourages us today to bend down in our weakness, our shortcomings, to lean into those uncomfortable and painful situations in ourselves, our friends, our neighbors, the people in our churches, in our communities, and yes, even our enemies. To bend down so that another can be lifted up. And yes, you will experience the spirit of Jesus lifting you up. But we are lifted up so that we can bend down to serve, to heal, to love. I love what Henry Nouwen says about what it feels like to be led by the Holy Spirit. He says, we are called to be fruitful, not successful, not productive, not accomplished, because success comes from strength, stress, and human effort. Fruitfulness comes from vulnerability and the admission of our own weakness. So when we pray that simple, ancient prayer, Come, Holy Spirit. We invite Jesus to have his way with us, to move with wild power and intensity. And as people who want to participate in God's saving acts today, we follow the Holy Spirit who likes to do his business on the road because the meat is in the street. On the road of doing a midnight Bible study in college because it was this girl who got delivered of a demon. It was this girl who caught the kingdom bug and started on the road with the Holy Spirit, which led her to teach kids who were pretty different from her in the South Bronx. This girl who was led to join an organization to fight human trafficking and then help lead a small group of people plant a, a vineyard church in Connecticut 12 years ago. I know that this room hums and vibrates with stories of obedience. It's because you are also in it for the stories. I'm in it for the stories. The real fruit of going where the Holy Spirit is already present. Uh, Brian Stevenson, who wrote this book, Just Mercy, was the inspiration for our Get Proximate conference. And uh, he has another saying that, we, that I've just completely co-opted, which is, hope is our superpower. Hope is our superpower. We are called to a broken world that moans and gasps for help, a world that can feel like it's screaming death, but we get to say, there is life in you. 
We can give the spirit of death permission to have the last word. All it needs are the silent, comfortable bodies of hollow men and women. We can, have, we can let the old order have its way. Or we can say yes to the new order. Living obedient like Philip and Ananias. Live open like the Ethiopian eunuch. Pay attention like Paul, even when he knocks you to the ground. We are the hosts who can bring the kingdom of God into the lives of the people and communities around us. We bring it, and then maybe we're supposed to get out of the way. Look instead for what God can do and look for what God will do.